My name is Pam Mott, and as I said, I've been with the Christian Learning Center as a teacher consultant um, for, I lose track of time. Um, I always say I've been there for at least 10 years and less than 50 years. Works for me, okay? My background has been as an educator ever since I graduated from Kellen College, special educator. So I have worked um, my entire professional life with uh, the kiddos that have a difficult time learning, a difficult time fitting in. Um, and today I'm here to share with you some of what I've gained more recently through um, a book that um, CLC as teacher consultants that we did a book study on. And it really impressed upon me something that I deep down I know I knew, but the way that it was explained really made a lot of sense to me. So I'll be sharing that with you along with some um, very practical ideas on how to help you as an educator to encourage that positive behavior. So to start off with, how can you actively encourage positive student behavior in your classroom? So what I would like you to do is give that a little bit of thought and then if you're not sitting next to somebody, I know this is a little awkward, but I'm gonna invite you to just slide over so you're near somebody because at different points, I'm gonna ask you to just talk and turn. And this is one of those. I want you just to get yourself narrowed in on what we're gonna be focusing in on is what can you act to, or how can you actively encourage positive student behavior? So think first by yourself for 20, 30 seconds, and then talk in turn, please. Anyone willing to shout out? 
So using positive reinforcement. And the other thing I heard you say that I want to support very strongly, and those of you who have been teaching for years, you know this, you know this, you know this, is taking that time at the beginning of the year and talking about, basically, this is how our classroom's going to work today. This is how we are going to become a community. Um, part of my um, professional life involves working with student teachers. So I supervise student teachers for Grand Valley State University as well as Hope College. And I emphasize that to my beginning teachers because they're the ones that really have to understand this. Where I say to them, that first week of your school year, don't, seriously don't worry about academics as much as setting your procedures, set your expectations, you need to get off on strong footing. Part of that then is what's happening is kids know where the boundaries are. Kids know what you're expecting. There's not a surprise coming around the corner. That's going to bring more positive behavior. Absolutely. Here are my learning targets today, and I put them in I can statements. I can explain the importance of each, each and every student as a member or a citizen of their or my classroom. I can describe several best practices that blend with the values and goals of an inclusive classroom. And I think can add more tools to my teacher toolbox that supports students' social, emotional needs and that actively encourages positive student behavior. As I get around to many, many classrooms, and by the way, Side note, as I saw someone taking this picture, this PowerPoint is on the website for CEA that you can access it. If you haven't already, you'll be able to do that at a later point. As I get around to many classrooms, and a big reason why I stay with the supervision of student teachers is I love the amount of different classrooms I get into, from your private schools to your public schools. And I've learned so much from the excellent teachers that are out there. But part of what I'm hearing our teachers saying and what I have seen over the years that I've been involved in education is the grave increase in the social, emotional makeup of our students, the high needs of our students, the behavioral concerns that our students come to school with. It's really grown significantly, and I know I'm not telling you anything new. But because of that, we as the teachers, as the educators, we have to have some new tools in our toolbox. Because kids today are different than what kids were, at least when I entered the profession. A book that has profoundly impacted my learning over the last I would say five to six years, is this one that's projected up there, becoming a great inclusive educator. So even though you may not be considered a special educator, we all today have to be inclusive educators. You know that you know you have kids in your classroom that are complex learners, complex social, emotionally, and therefore your classroom is an inclusive classroom. The um, main author of the book is Scott Danforth. It's a very readable
and it will give you some great insights. I highly recommend picking that up and giving it a read. So what is one of the main challenges for an inclusive educator? First of all, it really isn't about finding just that right, just that best behavioral program, or if only I could figure out what system I should use, or what interventions I should use. That's a part of it, but that's not going to completely help you to be a really strong, inclusive educator, or help you to really be able to address those behavioral, emotional needs. It's definitely a part of it. You have to have some type of management system. When I'm working with my student teachers, one of the first requirements I have for them is you need to write in a paragraph about your mentor teacher's management system. And just about, especially in our private schools, my just about, I would say nine out of 10 of my students that I'm supervising right now will come back to me and say, well, I talked to my teacher and she or he says, I don't have a management program. I just have really good kids. I don't need it. And I go, okay. Now you need to go back tomorrow and you need to ask some questions because they do. I said, every effective teacher has one, whether it's written or unwritten. And what I say to them is, for instance, like, what if the student doesn't take their seat when you say you need to go sit over there? What are you going to do? And they look at me like, I don't know. You gotta talk to the teacher. You need to find out how do they make things happen in the classroom. So it is about that. I'm not saying that it isn't, but it isn't the main thing. Rather, you need to work at selecting the best practices that blend well with the values and goals of an inclusive schooling. So it's more about best practices than it is about strictly following a management system that you could Google and somebody would say, oh, if you do these five things, you'll have no behavioral problems, okay? It's more about those best practices. Two words I want you to reflect on a moment. Membership and citizenship. What I would like you to do, if you have a piece of paper in front of you, is just write down either words or a phrase that come to mind when you think of the word membership and when you think of the word citizenship. So I'm just going to give you like 10, 15 seconds to do that, please. teaching in the classroom. It was a priority for me that all my students truly sensed, truly felt that they were a member of my class. I don't know that I really considered whether they were a citizen 
I'm a citizen as well. I'm a citizen of the United States. But what does that mean? What does that entail? Are the two words the same? Are they vastly different? So how many people here, by the show of your hands, have a membership to a gym? So you know what that means, right? You're able to go in, you're able to use the equipment, you can shower there, okay? So a membership, or maybe you have a membership to Costco or, Costco or Sam's Club, right? Meaning you can go there, you can purchase things. But what, what then does a citizenship do for you? Consider, actually what I'd like you to do, if you could, pull to your mind right now, a student right now that you are responsible for, it's in your class or one of your classes, that, um, I like to use the phrase, pushes your buttons. Um, has some behavioral, quirks about them, shall we say, that really challenge you. You have a name in mind? Now consider the possibility that that particular student may not truly feel that they're a member of your classroom. And there could be some really good reasons for why. They're always on the outside. Many teachers don't do this anymore, but if you were to say, pick a partner, they're the one left standing without a partner. What does that feel like, do you think, for that student to not, not only feel, but believe that they're a member of your classroom, truly a member of your classroom? Could that be a reason, not maybe the reason, but a reason for some of those behaviors? For why they don't do what you ask them to do or what you expect them to do? I want to propose to you that if indeed that's where some of the behaviors, misbehaviors, lie is that they don't believe or feel they're a member, that we would, I think, respond to that different way than the way at least I always thought was, oh, they're just trying to push my buttons, or they're just trying to be a thorn in my flesh, or they're just, they come from such a bad home, and they just, you know, that's just kind of part of it, or whatever, though. I think you would handle it differently. Three words that we're going to take a quick look at. Maybe a descriptor of that particular student that you've been thinking of. The word alien, the word squatter, and the word citizen. So these three ways to think about classroom descriptor of students comes out of the book by Scott Danforth. And it's this piece in particular that has stayed with me from when I read the book. Let's look at what he means when he says that you have students in your classroom that are really aliens. His definition, community membership overtly is denied. The excluded child is viewed as defective, 
lacking something essential that is needed for participation in the classroom. This child is viewed as a burden and is typically schooled in a separate education location. They're an alien. They feel like they're an alien. They don't feel as if they belong. A squatter has many of the same defective burden attributes as the alien, perhaps with some reduced intensity. The squatter often has a space or a desk at the periphery of the general classroom community. The squatter is physically included in the classroom, but is not treated as truly belonging to, excuse me, to the community. The child is often seated at the side of the classroom or concealed, whew, this is strong language, or concealed behind a human barrier of a teacher's assistant assigned to the child. A squatter. A citizen is a human being who is fully valued as a member of the learning community. Such a community requires a participation and contribution of all members. Community is both the location and the social process in which individuals become themselves and equality and freedom are valued. So think about your classroom. Are all your students fitting that definition of a citizen? Do you have maybe a squatter or two? Is there an alien in your classroom? I'm a firm believer that when you hear something, whether it's from a speaker or in a conversation, and, and it hits you here, and you go, oh my, I, I think I'm, I'm guilty of, of, of some of the squatter definition, maybe even the healing definition. And there's a part of me that goes, I'm really embarrassed that I actually know better. I'm here to say, you forgive yourself because you're doing the best you could do with what you knew and understood. But once you hear something different, then it's up to you to make changes in the way you think or in the way you handle certain situations. So what are two goals for encouraging this positive behavior? First of all, it's to make that decision that you're going to support all students as citizens. That all students in your classroom, in your school, are valued members. And secondly, you're going to help create and help your other students, all students, to create a respectful, peaceful classroom climate that's conducive to learning for all. So it's making that vow, making that promise to yourself. Again, as I've already said, and you know this, that the classroom is both a social space and a learning space. That you as the teacher, you as the educator, you are always teaching social-emotional skills, 
you're teaching proper behavior, whether you want to or not, you're doing it every day, all day long, just as you're working through your curriculum and you're creating stronger learners as you go through the school year. You've likely heard about the three-tier approach. Back several years ago, RTI hit the educational world, response to intervention, and that is based on a three-tier approach. With tier one is for most students, tier two is for some, and tier three is for a few. So I'm just gonna go through now a couple of different um, interventions, techniques, strategies, whatever you wanna call them for each one of these tiers. Some of these, most of these, I'm guessing you either already do and you're going to feel encouraged to keep doing them and know that you're doing some very sound practices that research supports. Um, for some of you, you hopefully will walk away with a new idea and thinking, hmm, maybe I need to look into that a bit more, or that's a simple technique. I could easily put that into place, okay? I don't have anything here that's rocket science. There are simple things that you can do. So the first one, and this is for tier one, for most or all students is the way I think about it, and it's called the classroom meetings. Is there anybody here that holds regular classroom meetings and it's recommended, at least according to research and so forth, that you do it weekly or bi-weekly? Anyone do that with their class? Excellent. Share with those who maybe don't, um, at least if you do it regularly and have good success with it. So the classroom meeting is, the purpose of it is that it's a problem-solving meeting. It's a time to meet as a class and to talk about problems and solve them as a class. Waiting for the computer to catch up here. The dreaded spinning wheel, right? Um, so a classroom meeting, if facilitated well, can profoundly make a difference with that student behavior. Therefore, it's part of that positive behavior encouragement, part of the positive approach. It impacts attitudes, relationships, problem solving, and overall the climate of the classroom. Classroom meetings are held with, depending on the age of the student, with the students leading the meeting, you as the teacher are the facilitator. But it's a great opportunity as well to give students the opportunity to be the leader and to hone in on some of those leadership um, skills. So again, there are regular scheduled meetings, recommended weekly, but I do know of teachers that do them bi-weekly. Many teachers will, at least in the elementary level, will have a box along with a little form that students can fill out. So the idea is here that students fill out one of these forms if they are bothered by a behavior or if there's something that they're concerned about and they submit it and they put it in the box. 
the teacher, you as a facilitator, before you have your meeting, are going to go through those forms. Depending on how many things are in there, because you're not going to spend two hours going through if there's 20 slips in there, right? So you're going to have to be the one that picks out the problem or problems to be dealt with for the day. But the idea here too is that you sit in a circle. A circle because students then are looking at each other. And what um, people who have practiced this will admit to and will say is students are far more honest and more tolerant when you're in a circle and you're looking at each other rather than most of them speaking to the back of somebody. A student leader, as I've said, you as the teacher are the secretary and the facilitator of the meeting, that you teach the process early. So if you're going to institute this, the first few um, classroom meetings you do, you will be modeling. You will be the leader for the first few. Makes sense, right? So you're modeling for the students how it runs. And then you frame the problem as a shared problem. So if there's something that comes from Owen that says that um, Susie has been calling me names and I hear Susie calling all kinds of kids' names, you don't use names in your discussion. And that's one of the things you make really clear to kids, that we talk about the problem we don't talk about people or peers. So we talk about how to solve it. Those are the basics. Here's what an elementary meeting agenda might look like. So you have your encouragement circle. And part of that is that you start out with, today our leader is um, Jeannie. I'm going to give everyone an opportunity. You're the facilitator. What have you seen in Jeannie, or what have you seen her do that you want to compliment her with? So it's an opportunity for students to encourage the leader. And you just spend like two minutes, you just get a couple of responses. So that's the encouragement circle. And then if there's any business as a facilitator, you have these written out for the leader. And that gives the leader the opportunity to say, well, at our last meeting, here's what we talked about. This is what we decided. You move on to new business. So you move on to today's um, conversation. What is the problem that we're going to address today? And then you take time to say thank you to the leader and any other compliments that you might say or the leader might say to the other students in the circle. Depending on the age of the student will depend on the length, the time you give to your meeting time, okay? So youngers, you might only spend five to 10 minutes. Upper elementary, you might be spending upwards of 15 or 20 minutes. Just depends on your situation. What might a secondary meeting look like? It's a little more straightforward and to the point, and there are um, classrooms of teachers at the middle school level. I'm not aware of very many at the high school level that are in place, but I'd love to talk to a high school teacher if they, he or she have ever tried it. Um, but you state the problem, so you just jump right in. You set a goal related to that problem. You examine what
what's been going on and what might be causing it. Again, you're getting this from the students. The students are giving their side, their version, what they see. Together you brainstorm and then you make a plan. So it's a little more, I, I call it less touchy-feely and more direct to jumping in and solving the problem. So what might be some tier one outside of just a classroom meeting? What are some other ideas that you might be able to implement? One is called a talk ticket. I know all of you have dealt with at least one and probably several students who like nothing more than to hear their own voice in the classroom. Am I correct? Always the one who wants to answer a question maybe or always says, has this free flight of ideas that go on that when you're talking about something, it triggers something and they're like, and you just know, oh no, we're going to travel somewhere if I call on him or her, right? They always have something they want to say. And I know, like, I had this just recently with a student teacher, and I said, do you know how many times that student spoke during your 20-minute lesson? And she goes, I know, but I feel so mean if I just shut him down or if I just, you know, don't call on her all the time. And I said, it's a problem though, isn't it? I know, what do I do? I love this idea of a talk ticket. So you, of course, you explain this early on, or if you're gonna implement it right now, you explain what it is. You make talk tickets available, or you just, right away, you hand out a couple to all your students that they can hang on to. And if something comes to mind, and part of what happens with those talkers is they're afraid they're going to forget, right? So I got to see it because I'm going to forget it, right? So you say to them, if you think of something that you really want to share with me or with the class, you have to write that down on your talk ticket. Now, in order for your talk ticket to work, you have to follow through. So you have to find a way to give that student time to talk. Now, it might just be you and the student, it might be, depending on what it is they want to share, maybe you build in some time for them to tell the principal, or the custodian, or if you have a counselor, or maybe it's another teacher. So part of it is spread the wealth around your building with these talkers. Talk ticket. Here, see if I cover it here in minutes. So I think the one thing I probably didn't emphasize real well is that when you are given the talk ticket, try to, within the next hour, to designate who you're going to see, maybe not the next hour, but that same day, I should say, um, who it is they're going to talk to about it, and say when. Try to get that nailed down quickly. Brain breaks. I'm guessing many of you use brain breaks. Here's another really easy um, um, strategy to implement in your classroom. So you select an activity for your break. It can, and I often say it should, include some kind of movement. Maybe it's just a relaxation time. 
Um, maybe it's a time for some verbalization with other students. You explain the purpose of the break to your students. Try to, and this just depends on your classroom, but try to implement some type of brain break every 25 to 30 minutes. Older students should probably can extend that a bit more. In most elementary classrooms, what I find, this is pretty much the length of a lesson. It's about 30 minutes by the time you've taught it and they do a little worksheet or a little activity with it. It flows with the, the regular schedule in a lot of classrooms. Older students, maybe you would say uh, more like 40 to 50 minutes. Um, and then you invite the participant or the students all to participate. Sometimes you have to offer a choice, um, but brain, break, brain breaks are really important. I know as an adult, I need brain breaks. So like when I'm working on a presentation like this, my brain break is, okay, I need to get this far in my outline, and then I can get up and then go get a dust chocolate. Then can I focus when I know chocolate is waiting for me? But I seriously do that. I set little increments of time. Like, okay, I gotta sit down, I gotta get this started, I'm gonna do it for this long, and then I get to go do something, or maybe I'll put, go out and do a walk, okay? But kids are in a classroom, and kids don't have that right to just do it. Now, you have kids who just do it, right? You've got the kids who are sharpening their pencil for the 10th time, and it's only 9 o'clock, right? Why are they doing that? Well, there could be different reasons, but one might be they just need a brain break. Here's a couple really easy brain breaks. When I was um, actively teaching, I often had the cheap, you know, the cheap um, white paper plates that you can buy. What do you get? Like 200 for two bucks? I don't know. I had those in my room, and I used paper plates for all kinds of different things. But kids, and I even saw a high school class doing this, believe it or not, um, if you can just get them out of their little comfort safety zone. Um, it's called skiing. So everyone gets two paper plates and before you do any kind of brain break, like I said, you have to set the limitations because kids will go crazy with this. And you have to just make clear, if you don't follow the guidelines I give you, your brain break will be sitting your bottom back in your seat. And most kids will follow it. So it's just simple. Brain break. 
It's not the, a bad tradition from the tummy and the forehead, right? You can do that when that's a good oldie one. It's great. And it just gets that brain thinking really differently. Different brain teasers, Google it. There are all kinds of brain teasers. If you're going to do a brain teaser one, um, I would suggest that you invite them to get up and move to a different part of the room just to bring some movement to them. And then you can have some different brain teasers either projected, you could have slips of paper that they pick up, but you know, what can point in every direction but can't reach the destination by itself? Your index finger. You can point in every direction but you don't reach the destination by itself. A fun website up here is um, do-nothing-for-two-minutes.com. There's all kinds of fun. I think I got the finger thumb one off that one, actually. There are all kinds of different things. Your brain break, the intention, is to last about two minutes. So you're not taking a break for long. Now, the first few times with kiddos, sometimes it gets stretched to five minutes because they haven't caught on. But once you've practiced it and you let them know, in fact, I'm in a lot of classrooms that use a timer. Timer goes off and it's amazing. The kids pick up their, their skis, they put them back in their little cubby or whatever, and they're back in their seat. Because you teach the kids, this is what it's for, this is how long it's going to last, and then we're going to get right back. And they're ready. They're right back. They sit and they're ready to go. All right, so there are some simple little things you can do. It encourages that positive behavior in a really short length of time. Now let's talk about tier two. What's something you can do for some kids? So these are gonna be your more complex kids, not maybe your most complex, but for, in most classrooms, maybe it's that three or four kind of students. And this is called check-in, check-out. Any schools that you're part of that use a check-in, check-out system? Awesome. It can be really, really effective. Um, so the, the plan here is that teachers, students, and parents first. You talk. You need parental support to do this. You work together to craft a short list, three to five individual behavioral goals. I strongly encourage always no more than three. I think five is too many to make a difference. Sometimes you're only working on one. What is either the most impactful misbehavior or, and I often go here, what behavior needs to be changed that I think I can maybe get some success quickly? Because that encourages you as the teacher and the student. Because sometimes when you do that most challenging one, that one takes a lot of hard work and more time. Make sense? Secondly, create a daily behavioral rating sheet. So you're going to be rating this. Student checks in with an adult, typically someone other than yourself. And I've been in schools where they, again, they've used a custodian to do the check-in, the check-out. They've used maybe the administrative assistant, another teacher. You get creative with this. So they start their day, the first place they visit is with whoever has been assigned to them as their check-in person. This little time 
the main purpose behind it is to build a positive relationship with the student. That's why you don't, not that you as a teacher don't want to have a positive relationship, but you need somebody that doesn't have baggage with the student, okay? And then at the end of the period or block of time, for a lot of kids, it's at the end of the day, they go back to that same person for the checkout. And they're looking then at the rating sheet. How did you do today? On whatever the target behavior or behaviors are. So throughout the day, they have this rating sheet that they're giving to their teachers, and their teachers are rating it. It has to be a very simple rating sheet. Usually it's a chart that they can just check or put a smiley face or some kind of signal of where they are on the daily rating sheet. And then again, this is shared with home. Many teachers that have done this will have this electronic. During the day, it's on paper. Or you can do it electronically if they have, you know, a uh, device. But then it's emailed home or text home. So you make sure that the parents get to see it. Here's one example of a daily rating um, chart. I know you probably can't read it, but I think you can just get the idea of what's going to happen here. They're just rating it with numbers. You're either a one, two, or a three. Here's another um, simple example. And there are many of those online. If you just Google check in, check out, you'll have all the specifics of how to set it up, how do you do it, and then there will be different examples of rating charts that others have used and are sharing. So check in, check out. Takes a little bit more time, but it, it can make a world of difference for some of those tier two kiddos. Tier three, these are going to be more your complex, misbehaving students. They, and this is what you have to understand about the tiered system, they are part of tier one strategies. So if you're doing a classroom meeting, they're part of that. They're part of tier two. They're likely part of your check-in, check-out. Then you only will have a few students, very few, maybe only one that could be in the tier three, maybe none. And the thing that I have seen the most success with is what's called collaborative problem solving. And this um, is typically, again, for just one or two students. In most schools, um, let me stop a minute. Any of you read any of Ross Green's work? He is, I think, some of the best stuff on the market. He's been around a long time. This particular book is really, really helpful. It sets out what the collaborative problem solving system is, and it's often told through real life examples, real life student situations, and how it was applied in a particular uh, behavioral situation. Um, Ross Green says in his book that most Schools' disciplinary systems are written for kids who don't need it. Think that through. Most disciplinary systems in schools are written for kids that don't need it. Because they follow it. They don't need it. They're, they're good kids. They respect rules. They want to do well. So they follow it. And so we write it for kids who follow it. It's the kids that 
don't follow it, then our problem. And most of our disciplinary systems don't work with them. They're repeat offenders. They're always having to be sent to the office or have zero hour or whatever the, the plan, the disciplinary plan states. So we really have to think differently with these kids. With these kids, often rewards and punishments don't work for them. The kids that don't need it, it works. They'll do anything to get another star or another sticker or to not have to go to zero out. The collaborative problem solving system is a pragmatic approach when other disciplinary systems fail. The foundational belief that Ross Green proposes is that kids do well if they can. Kids do well if they can. Do you believe that? So the back side of that then is, is if they're not doing well, it's because they can't. They're lacking in some skills. And that's what Ross Green proposes, is that they do not have the necessary skills to behave. So a very different way of looking at those kiddos. Yet if we really, really stretch this out, if you could consider with me a moment the repeat offender that ends up in jail time, time again. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? Part of it is jail's predictable. Jail confines me. I know I'm going to get a meal. I know I'm going to be warm. But to come to that kind of conclusion, at least to me, says that person doesn't have the skills to survive, to function in society. So they break the law, they end up back in jail because they don't have the skills to not do that. I'm not saying necessarily intellectual, but it may be they don't have the emotional, social skills to do what needs to be done. That's part of the premise of what Green would say, is that they lack the cognitive and the social skills. So those kiddos in our buildings, be it kindergarten, be it sixth grade, be it their senior year, that are still being misbehaving, what skills are they lacking? Punishment and rewards are not motivating them. They need more structure and they need more support. Ross Green would say that the challenging situation, so maybe it's they always seem to get in trouble on the bus. He calls it an unsolved problem. That implies, if it's unsolved, that it can be solved. So his whole system is all about figuring out what's the unsolved problem, what are the skills needed, let's make sure we teach those skills so that we can solve the problem. Caring adults have to be part of the solution, that's you guys, and then we help to teach those to the student. So again, as I said, the book has several examples, there's a plan A, B, and C, 
Um, I don't have time to go through all of that today, but if this intrigues you, you can sim simply go to this website, livesinthebalance.org, and everything is right there. There is no fee involved. His system is completely explained in how you would implement it. It does take some time to figure it out, but you, you could be the one to make that difference in that kiddo's life by going through the collaborative problem solving system. Keep in mind, if you do go there and you look at it, you're only doing this with very few students. You yourself might be involved and you will have to have your principal part of this or at least aware of it. You may only do this with one student each year. It is intensive, I will tell you that. But it is also very effective. Again, the book will be really helpful, Lost at School. Um, and again, you can just get that on Amazon. The biggest thing I can leave with you today is you need to decide that you're going to work diligently at trying to be that person that helps those kiddos in a positive way. Be it some of the little techniques I shared with you, be it going as far as figuring this out. Thinking again about, are all my students truly a full member, a citizen of my classroom? Would all of them be able to say yes? And are they treated that way not only by myself, but by the peers? And if not, then to step back and figure out, what can I do? Do I need to check in and check out? Do I need to get this book and figure it out and do something very different? Again, I thank you for being here today. I wish you um, the best for the rest of the day. This is my email um, address if there's anything else I can help you out with a specific situation. And I'll be around for a little bit if there's anything you want to talk to me about. So thank you very much.